All right. Today is March 15th, 2021. We are recording on a Monday. Monday, Monday. Yeah, you are in Club Jam. Going to get you kicked off on the start of your your work week. Most of you are already at work. (laughs) Still not at work yet, but hey, we are here (laughs) to record another episode of the Positivity Wall. Today, you are you're going to be given uh, volume 12. And um, I'm like I said, I mean, I said it. I don't know if I said it in my last episode or the next two, you know, 12, 13. Um, they are very, very important to me. Um, they hold the same type of um, importance or energy as one does. And um, so I'm very, very, very excited that. I, I'm going to record it for you and I'm going to make it what it is. I think um, 17 is one of those that is, is very touching for my heart. Um, you know, 18 has importance as well. And then, like I said, we're going to take you into that that home stretch with 19 and 20 and B2. But like I said, the next two weeks, you'll be given positivity walls that really... Um, really stir up a lot of emotion in me, really stir up a lot of things. And so as we get ready to go into the next segment to think out loud, I'm going to not really going to set you up for it because I'm just going to let the episode be what it is. I really want to talk about um, something that I think is important for history. I want to put it out here and then I'm going to let the positivity wall 12 be what it is. Um, So just finished recording a lost episode. I think it was like Friday or Saturday, lost episode two. I gave you more poetry. I gave you more from the heart. I gave you more perspectives. Um, I think I'm a lost episode three is coming up. I can feel another one in the works. Um, I may record it this week. I also have a parenting episode that I have just about put the finishing touches on it. Um, right now I'm still trying to figure out if I just want to record it in, in, in this pod form where it's just audio, or if I actually want to record it with video, what I may do is I may record it for the pod. So I have it and then record like some type of video, um, reaction as well. I've had a few parents ask me different ways that I parent and things like that. And so it made me very inspired to bring together, um, some of the things that I think have been very successful for me as a dad. And I think things that can be successful for others, specifically as someone who was raised in, you know, in a, in a situation that could be mentally and emotionally um, draining. And so um, as far as the other list that I have, I have not written any episodes on those. I have been really focused on this parenting episode. Um, so it's taken me a week to kind of frame it It's taking a little bit more time because there's so much that you can talk about, Um, but I'm excited about that. I think that one we will record next week Um, unless I get the whim this week. It's it's spring break, so I'm going to spend the week with my son. We're going to take some adventures together. It's going to be fun. He's going to get introduced to um, crab. He's never had crab, so he's and I'm going to take him to one of my favorite ramen spots in the in the panhandle and let him try some ramen let him try some boba tea i am very very excited about that and um you know it's just one of those things so i'm excited about that that's what we have on top for this week um 
if I get a whim, you may get another episode toward the end of the week. I don't foresee a lost episode coming in this week, but you never know with me. I might just get on and talk about stuff. I feel really, like I said, the topic I'm going to talk about and thinking out loud is I'm going to talk about the voter suppression laws. And so I feel another black in America episode coming up. I feel like that. So if I start writing tonight, it could come by the end of the week. I just feel really strongly about talking about it. And um, um, so I'll do that. But that is really your club announcements. You're going to get <laughs> Positivity Wall 12 today. Um, got some stuff in the in the pipeline, like I told you before, I believe in my last episode or the, the, on the Positivity Wall or maybe the Lost episode. In those club announcements, we have completed all Positivity Walls. They are written. So all I have to do is give them to you. We are at 12. So I'm celebrating the small victories. Thank you so much for listening to my bodies of work. I hope that it resonates with you. I hope that you find some kind of helpful nugget or at least some laugh. Hopefully I give you one of our, or both. And that's really um, what I hope to do for the audience. For myself, I am just recording my life transcripts. And um, that's what it really comes down to. I'm just recording my life because if something should ever happen to me, I mean, we all expire. My son will have these for himself. So that's what I'm excited about getting looking forward to it. Uh, We are going to give you the positivity wall 12 today. And next comes your thinking out loud. Yeah. So, yeah, we're back. And so, as I was saying in, in the opening, in the announcements, I wanted to talk about this this Georgia, um, you know, SB 241 and HB 531. I want to talk about the, the voter suppression <laughs> laws. Um, or as I've said, um, as I posted on my Instagram this morning, Jim Crow laws. Like, we, we are at a point where we cannot allow civilization to roll back time. And um, we cannot go back to the the sixties, the fifties, the forties, the thirties. We can't go back. We just can't. Um, from my generation, I know of my mother. I know of my grandmother and the struggles they've dealt with. Um, and I know of my father, and I know of my grandfather's and the struggles they've dealt with. And so, um, <clears throat> what the thought that I really wanted here was to really sit with you. And make you kind of understand if you don't know, if you haven't been paying attention, you know, if you're under a rock, let's just give you SB 241 repeals no excuse absentee voting. So, you know, you don't get an excuse to that. Um, So I'm imagining like the way it works for me in Florida. I request an absentee ballot because I know they're working on that in Florida, too. And um, ever since I've been 18, I voted in every election, um, whether it is. just a, a municipality type of election all the way up to the White House election. I have voted state races every time there's a time to vote. Two, four, two, four. How many, you know, it could be a, a referendum that comes up. I vote because as a black person, I understand not only the privilege that I have of it, but those who died to give me the right to do it. Um, and so I think it's, it's something that's very important and it's something that I'm very passionate about that you have to vote. And so when you look at SB 241, you're taking all types of people for all types of reasons and saying, Hey, 
<laughs> you don't you got to show a valid cause of why you need absentee voting. We're in America. <clears throat> We're in America. We talk about being one of the greatest countries, right? Well, I just look at it like come on, are we really going to make voting hard? <laughs> like I'm in Florida. When you talk about an unemployment system that is trash, it is trash. Like they made it hard on purpose so that you give up. So I prayed for people who have been going through it because it is not fun. As someone who had to use the system himself, it was not fun. But I know the rat race. The rat race was give up. They're trying to push you into submission. And so HB 531 restricts secure drop boxes. It criminalizes volunteers for giving food and water in those long lines. And so some of what those bills propose, too, is like – uh, let's see. You need, okay, so in SB 241, you're going to need a court order to extend voting hours. So if those long lines, if you're in one of those long lines, five o'clock comes, well, that's it. You're not in, you don't get to vote. And similar to what Texas did in this last election cycle, if you take a populace like, um, a populace. We'll just we'll use black people as an example where a large black populace is and you decide to close polling stations for them and give them one. Well, if you cut down early voting and you cut down absentee balloting, then everyone has to show up on election day. And there is what I find funny about voting is, yeah, you may get a sample ballot, but every you know, every state's different about the vote, the voting procedure. If you're going in and you're actually circling or if you're actually using a digital screen, a lot of a lot of states now are using digital technology to perform this task. But if you haven't been trained on that, that's like giving a two year old a computer. He's going to bang it around before he figures it out. Right. And so the whole point of voting is sharing your voice, making your voice be heard. And you're seeing um, a Republican state that basically says, we don't want that. <laughs> so um, we're going to call it what it is. It's it's voter suppression, which is a.k.a. Jim Crow laws. And that's why one of the things that's important by this current Congress and this current president is that they have to push through the John Lewis Voting um, Right Advancement Act. It has to be pushed through and they must kill the filibuster. Those two things have to happen. Now, the stimulus bill has been passed. People are going to get checks. People are going to get happy and they're going to take their eye off the prize. But it is very apparent that you see Republicans swinging back off of the things that 45 has said. And yes, when I say 45, that is the only designation that when I speak, he will ever have. Because the thing about this country is we are allowing foolishness to keep us from getting to a higher consciousness. And we have to stop that. And when I look at these two bills, they are concocted out of just pure. (laughs) The words that I could say, (laughs) I'm trying to I'm trying to um, I'm trying to really keep it together because it really frustrates me. And this is why I think I'm going to make another black in America episode. But let me give you some examples just when you because you could be like, well, you're saying this, but. Um, what, what's, what's that look like? You know, what's, the, what's that look like? Well, let me show you who it looks like. Um, I, I would say people of color would be disadvantaged with these two bills, but I'm going to specifically tell you in Georgia and Atlanta, which Atlanta, and I believe what, um, 
one of the other black populous counties, can't remember it, um, from when I was watching election night, carried Georgia to a Democratic victory um, and allowed, you know, a black Democratic senator. So people of color, but yeah, uh, specifically black people, you know? specifically black people. And so when you think about that, low-income people, elderly, students, uh, you know, rural residents, people with disabilities, we, we listen to Republicans talk about how they care for Americans and that they're doing this for Americans. But when you look at these groups of Americans, they, they hold a very important populace. They hold an, a very important populace within this country. And I think that I'm, you know, I, I like to remind you, my party affiliation is independent. I don't believe in a two-party system. I just believe that it, it, it causes people to care more about their gang because, you know, the Republicans and Democrats are the two largest gangs in history. <laughs> you know, they, they put the Crips and Bloods, you know, out of commission because for as many drive-bys Crips and Bloods have, have done, Crips and Bloods hadn't killed as many people, as many bombs as those people have dropped. And that's besides the point. The point is, is that when you work for me, your interest is my interest. My interest is your interest. And so when you talk about Republican members or even Democratic members who want to go in and, and, and vote against the interest of the populace, like I look at the stimulus bill, 71% of Americans wanted this bill and not one Republican <laughs> decided, hey, I'm we're going to we're going to vote for it. They all voted against it. Like you're talking about you're the party of the people, but you're really the party of the one percent and the special interest. Now, that's besides the point, because Democrats do it, too. But I think we're at a very important crossroads that if we do not push through this John Lewis bill um, and we do not kill the filibuster to, to help help ourselves set up future legislation, like I think, um Maternity and paternity leave, that, that's a very important thing. You know, the, the minimum wage discussion that's been going on in this country. Without doing that, what are we really doing here? We're just wasting time and we're helping the rich get richer. And I won't even go down that line. I just, I think that what we see in Georgia is a direct reflection of them striking back at, at Black people. And it's another thing in this history that it just really pisses you off. It pisses me off as a black person because I've always been taught to work harder, <clears throat> to strive further and to aim higher, only to have certain people try to erase parts of, of me or people who look like me out of history. And I think what they did in Georgia was amazing. I think what Stacey Abrams did was amazing to get that push. And here you are having Republicans go right in the session and then instantly try to stroke across that face of history. And it's embarrassing. And I think it comes back down to we are not at a place anymore in America where we are having real debate. And, and I don't know why we're not doing that, because we need debate more than ever. It's our differences that bring together our similarities. And it just shocks me that, you know what, shock's not even the right word. The truth is it angers me that we're at this place where we are not willing to listen, to understand. We're still trying to get our five minutes of time. So you can sit here, you can be distracted by social media, or you can use it to learn and unarm yourself because the futures of your children 
are being decided all the time for those in America who listen and uh, even around the world. And we have to take a stand as someone who's a millennial myself. I just don't believe in this crap these boomers have set for us. The way life has worked in this country is you as an old person get to make all the decisions because you're the senior and you get to take all the liberties and you get to roll back crap and protections on the generations after you. As a parent, it is my job to make sure my son jumps off my shoulders. It's not my job to make sure that I jump off of his. We got to do better. We got to be better. And this crap that these people are putting out here is just ridiculous. And so I got a little strong winded in that. Um, doesn't really have much to do with today's episode, but I think as far as, like I said, um, just having to strive strive and, and push myself harder, having to do certain things, um, this episode has some tones of, of being Black in America in it. Um, and so I wanted to say my piece on, on that. I will say more of it on a Black episode. I've decided midway through this segment that I will have, I will have my episode and um, we'll break it down even more. So yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that rant. I'm bringing a positivity wall 12 next. All right. So we are back. We are ready to give you another installment of the positivity wall volume 12 today. I thank you. If you, uh, if you felt my spirited impact on and, and, and preaching about voter suppression, it was it's a very passionate subject. Uh, you know, as a black person, I have um, encountered enough and a lot. And so, you know, we got to keep that going forward. But today we give you another episode, another um, chapter in the positivity wall, one that's important to me. Your positivity wall, volume 12, the card reads as follows. You taught yourself restraint. You thought it was your greatest tool. Opening up your heart that is your greatest tool. I'm going to read it one more time for you. Your Positivity Wall, Volume 12. You taught yourself restraint. You thought it was your greatest tool. Opening up your heart, that is your greatest tool. So, uh, yeah, this is <laughs> this is one to me. And so to give you that like that link really quick, so just in case you're like, okay, he, he gave us voter suppression and he went into positivity. Like, where's the connection here? As a black person, there are certain conditions I was raised under to always strive, uh, you know, further to aim higher because I had to work twice as hard as a white counterpart to get certain things. And I've, I've been in those situations. And so um, the one thing that is taught in our culture as well is restraint. Um, to be a black person in this country comes with very much a lot of anger, but also comes with a massive amount of restraint. Um, I think white people worry about some of the things that they've done to us over 400 years, but we're better than that. We would never do that to you in a thousand years. It's just not who we're built to be. We are a very forgiving race of people, even though people don't believe it, but we are. We will give off of our back to a stranger um, in most times when you don't realize that even when that stranger spits in our face, it calls us something that we're not supposed to be behind our back. We are a very forgiving race. And so I was, I was raised to have a mental strength um, at a higher capacity and bandwidth than most people. I had to be stronger. I had to forego, you know, people calling me an ape, a monkey. If somebody ever threw a banana at me, calling me the N word. Uh, and then my mother never really, prepared me for the micro 
aggressions. She just prepared me for like those, the big ones, the macro that this, the specific, you know, people are, I'm not thinking macro, but the, the, I should say the mega, the mega expressions where people call you the M word, where people say they don't like you. And I had to grow up and learn, like when I went to school, just being around a lot of white kids and seeing that they thought inherently that things were there for them and for them. And so um, having to be in my little box, but I was actually pretty good in my box. And then having to do that in the workforce as well, where I would be doing really great work, wouldn't get credit for it until the numbers, the black and white numbers said, no, I am the best. And there was never a time where somebody was giving me my just due before the number said, here he is, he is amazing. And so um, I grew up believing that restraint was one of the greatest tools that I had. And I say tool instead of weapon. I wanted to clarify that too. Um, When I wrote this one, I sat for some time making this one. That's why this one's important to me as well. Um, Because I didn't know if it should be weapon. And for me, I'm not the type of person that just believes in weaponizing anything. I'm not a, I'm not this mean or, you know, this vengeful person. So tool was, was more of the thought process resource because restraint was something that was taught to me, not in a weaponized form, but it was taught for me to be a resource, a resource for good, a resource to help me navigate a resource to remind me of where I'm going, even if I'm stunted. And so um, the words there are very important that they're tool and they're not weapon because I am not a weaponizing man. I don't believe in weaponizing. It is not who I am. I believe that we as people need to have more discussions, more debates, because it is through discussion, it is through debate that we learn about one another. We learn about our complexities and our differences, but we also learn about the similarities that we all share because guess what? We're all human beings, right? So um, to, to get into it, that, that's your connection point to what I was kind of talking about and where I get passionate. But um, um, for me, as far as the emotional side of this, outside of, you know, being black, um, that that's one aspect of it. Um, you know, in my culture, of course, you know, crying, being emotional, that's thought as weak, you're being a, a, a a punk, you know, being a, a whiny baby, like you get thrown all these names for being trying for trying to be expressive in, in your emotions. Um, naturally, I've always been an empathic type of being, and I am an emotional creature. I can sense it, I can read it, I can pick it up, and I had no issue really being who I was until like I got in my teenage years. And I started to try to flourish as a, as a person. And that's what teenagers do. That's what kids do when they start to become teenagers. What do they do? They come into their own. And my mother was very, very, <laughs> she did not play. She was very militant about her approach. She was the matriarch. And um, I respected it because um, I knew that this was the way it had to be. Uh, the problem I had with, with her and my father um, is... I think parents need to learn the lessons of their time when they were being raised as children and unpack that trauma so that they don't make the same mistakes when they become parents. Both of my parents did not learn that. And so my parents had a very special creature on their hands, and that's me. I was a, I was a very emotional, empathic, a sensitive in nature creature that needed more nurturing and more nourishment than motivation. I'm a very inspired person. If I wake up another day, I can find things to do and find things to inspire me. But my parents thought that 
they had to keep me inspired because I'm a black kid in America and I'm an endangered species. And at any time I could have been taken from my mom. And so I understood as an adult, I understood why she pushed me so hard as a kid. All I really wanted was I'm proud of you. I love you. And I talked about that before I needed that. I didn't just want it. I needed it. And because I didn't get it sometimes it caused me to have a lot of frustration. And so, um, it, it was a, it was a tough thing. It was a tough battle. And, and so when I look at this, this card here, when I talk about restraint, I taught myself how to handle emotions. I taught myself how to cry um, alone in the dark in a corner. I learned how to um, have somebody literally punch me in my chest emotionally and be able to take that punch without a tear being shed. I became numb to, um, situations directly and I would process them um, internally or externally afterwards in my own space. And so um, it, I thought that I had become really, really, really great. Like this was a great tool. And then I became an adult. I went through relationships. I then found, you know, I thought the love of my life, I, I, I married my wife, my ex-wife now. <laughs> and I, I became a father. And I, through that, I had to unpack a lot of trauma still. I had to unpack these emotions, these emotions of what I felt and, and just understanding that I wasn't taking care of myself emotionally. I was compartmentalizing because that's what I taught myself. I taught myself a level of restraint that equaled compartmentalization. And it was not healthy for me because ultimately I was having these, I, I would call them boil over moments. Um, when I would get really low, when I would be feeling at my lowest, then it would be a boil over. You're, you got a pot on the stove, you know, you're making a, a low cook boil and you didn't watch it and it boils over. That was what was going on with me. And so for me, um, I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of years hiding in plain sight. And so in my teenage years, it was very easy because, you know, when you're a teenager, everybody's like living life and doing things. And so um, I don't think my, a lot of my friends realized it until probably my senior year of high school when I didn't um, participate in graduation. I didn't participate in prom. Uh, I, I might have talked about this before, but I did not. There is only one yearbook in my whole time in high school that you can find me in. And it's my soft, sophomore year of high school because my, high school, uh, my 10th grade teacher made me take the photo. Every other year, I bucked the system and didn't take it because for me, I felt... I felt invisible. And when I became an adult, I, I used that trait of invisibility or that trait of restraint to allow me to go to work, do great work, connect with people, but never give them anything of me. Like there were people who felt close to me, but never knew who I really was. Didn't know that I was suffering alone. Didn't know that I was sad. Didn't know that I felt out of place, but I was an awesome worker. So they enjoyed my work and yeah, you know, I could be funny, I guess. And so they saw parts of me that they liked, but I was holding and hiding um, that, that biggest part. And I, I believe that I had to hide because I was conditioned in an environment not to be weak, not to share your full self. And as an adult, I get it. Like my mom was trying to, she taught me some very fundamental things that have helped me on this walk. You have to be very careful who you share your energy with, who you allow into your circle, because who you allow into your circle can reshape and make you rethink who you are and reshape your energy. And if they reshape your energy to negative, what's going to happen? You're going to become negative. So 
words have power, but people have power too. And if you allow people to have power over you, you put yourself in a dangerous position. And so, you know, my mom, (laughs) my mom was a speak when spoken to parent child hierarchy. Like I am the parent, you are nothing. You're a peasant kind of thought process. And it, I was taught to remain quiet. And in that I was taught to be seen, but never heard. And so when I was teaching myself those levels of restraint and compartmentalization, I started to teach myself non-body like language, non-verbal cues. And, and I was teaching myself this, and you're talking 14, 15 years old. I started learning people before I ever read a book on EQ and emotional intelligence. One of the I will say as far as my work career, one of the greatest tools or greatest things in my arsenal is emotional intelligence. I have had all types of jobs that have been very successful and I've been successful because I don't speak to people's traits. I speak to people because I had to learn it. I had to learn at a young age. There were a lot of mistakes that I grew up with, like with friends making mistakes. I had to learn from their mistakes by listening to their stories. Because I was, my mom sheltered me. She locked me up to basically stay in the house. She was worried that a black young male in the streets could get killed. And I understand that. I see young boys getting killed all the time. So um, I think, like I've talked about before, the, the problem with me was why. Why were you doing this? I learned why you did it later on. I understood how you did it while I was going through it, but I needed to know the why. And that was the disconnect. That could have saved my mother and I a lot of heartache um, if she would have just trusted me enough. And so um, in the parental episode, I will talk about some of the key tools that I have, the differences between how my parents parented me and how I parent my child. Because Ryan, my son, is, is similar to me. He's a very sweet soul, very empathic. He understands people's energy. He has a very good intuition and instinct, just like his dad. And those type of creatures like me and I, him and I, we can't be ruled by a fist because we are more intelligent than that. And I was, there was a lot of times I got punched in my mouth because I questioned how things were, how the establishment was. And it wasn't to be disrespectful. I was just questioning so that my mother understood that it didn't seem right. There was a lot of times I got punched in the mouth and I was right. And in the end, my mother never apologized or said, thank you, or you're right, JR. She just moved on because that's the problem with parents. Parents believe that they have all the answers. And I know as a parent myself, I do not have all the answers. Um, my son and I, it's a working relationship. My job as his father is to be a guide and a protector. I am supposed to protect him. And in that role of protector, I'm raising him, I'm feeding him, I'm sheltering him. But in the, ro- in, in the role as a guide, I'm supposed to be listening to understand how he views the world in his perspective. And I'm supposed to help him by showing him the world in, in my perspective, giving him some lessons so that he doesn't have to go through those pitfalls. I am the person or the, like I tell them, I'm your safety net. So if you have questions, I am the, your library. I'm an index card that you can come back to and reference it before you try to put yourself in a hairy situation. But to tell him how to live, to tell him how to be, like human beings were meant to exist. You cannot tell a human being how to be or how to exist. And so, um, you know, to the card itself, like I said, I spent time hiding. I spent time tinkering. I spent time watching and I spent time observing human beings. And it's kind of creepy how I how I was, but I learned so much by just watching people. 
<laughs> I can sit down with you for five minutes. I learn a lot about you without you necessarily um, telling me about yourself. You can just tell me about things that you do or places that you go. And so the, the downfall to me becoming an adult is, is that I live my life on restraint. And when you live your life on restraint, what if becomes a category in your life? Because it's like, what if I did this? What if I didn't do this? What if, there was a lot of times where I'm in my own head, you know, not taking certain chances because I'm like, well, should I take that chance? Should I be running after that opportunity? Or should I just sit down and actually understand that this is maybe not my time? Maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. And the cost, the cost associated with that became never allowing people to be close. So when I talk about having these struggles of self-doubt, self-esteem, feeling like I was nothing, at the same time, compartmentalization was allowing me to push people further away. And it became a natural response. I'd have friends who would be concerned about me and I would just push them away because I didn't have time for their energy in my circle. Talked about it on the last episode when I talked about writing poetry and making it cute so that people couldn't detect the scent. You know, I talked about, I talked to, um, to a friend about it last night and the response was, you know, I want you to write whatever you want. I just want you to know that I'm here for you. And in the end, what I learned about myself is I am, my instincts are pretty good. So I have an intuition that where I can see how things play out. So I can see things two to three steps ahead of time. And, and, and I'm not trying to sound crazy, but what I mean is, is like, I can talk with you and understand from your body language and how you are, what kind of movement you're going to make in my life. And so I tend to move people out of the way instead of letting life come to me as it naturally supposed to. So um, th this card is important to me because as I got older and I went to therapy and I started to unpack my traumas, the, the second part of this card is important. Opening up your heart, that is your greatest tool. Me being able to speak from my heart and tell people how I felt to be transparent, to be genuine, to be authentic. I have had way more, um, more endearing and just powerful responses from people in the last, I would say, six years, six, seven years than I ever had in my whole life. And it's because I wasn't afraid anymore to show that emotion, to say, I love you um, to like my male friends, because I was raised in an environment where my father didn't tell me that he loved me. You know, like, and and when I said it, it was always like weird. <laughs> so I always felt like I was odd. And and between my father and I, we had issues because I was I was a little different, but I wasn't I wasn't that different from him. I learned that I played baseball like my dad. My dad was in the band. He paid, played the sousaphone. I played the trumpet. He wrote poetry just like I do now. We have a lot of similarities. The differences are is like my dad was you know, big in the, like, as far as the sports he was into, he's big into boxing, he's big into basketball, but I like everything. You know, when I was a teenager, I was at home. So I'm learning about F1. I started watching hockey. <laughs> That's how I got into soccer, which is football. And, and it's the beautiful game. I love sports and I love competition and I enjoy it. But my dad always wondered like, man, how do you know about this? You know about this hockey player, you know about that. And it's because I am somebody who likes to learn. And if I see a sport that seems logical enough, which all those sports are, I can get behind it. I can watch it. And I think where 
every young boy looks to his father to give him, I guess, like the, the seal of approval for his last name. My first name is my name. I lived a lot of my life telling people to say my name right because I felt like that was the only attachment I had. And then once I got to a place where I was comfortable, where I no longer cared about the seal of approval for my father, like I accepted that that's my last name because I made myself proud of me. And so, um, and then it came along and then it came along. I, I, I talked to my dad and as we've gotten older, we've been able to have those conversations that matter. We've been able to have emotional conversations where we talk about things and it's not a screaming match because I don't feel like I'm being heard. He listens to understand just like I listen to understand him. And I just think it's the times of how they were raised. My, our parents were raised in a time where <laughs> um, World War II was over, civil rights signed, you know, women are in the workforce, divorce is on the table now. Life was a bit different in their times growing up. And so I think sometimes parents do the best they can with what they got, but I need parents to step up. <laughs> <laughs> I need parents to step up and go, hey, look, this is the I can do so much more and and be so much more because um it, it had an impact on me. But I think the greatest victory in this card and in this positivity wall is, is that I learned to open my heart and I learned to let light into it. And that became my greatest tool and will be by far when they bury me my greatest tool because by being in sync with myself and not being afraid of how the world views me, um, it allows me to write. It allows me to create. It allows me to do this pod. It allows me not to be afraid to share it to the world and go, this is my truth. I don't really care if people see me as odd. I don't care if black people see me as just weird. I've been weird my whole life. I've been odd. I've been different. They call me every kind of name. They haven't accepted me. And that's fine because ultimately they have accepted me for being who I am. And and so I think in this moment right here, I want to say, if you are that odd kid, <laughs> if you are somebody that no one is talking to, I'm talking to you. If you're someone who feels like you don't have friends or you don't, you're not understand by your family, understood by your family. If you're not, if you feel like you're alone, you're not. There's someone who loves you. Oh man, that's a poem that I wrote. There's someone who loves you for just you being you. Okay. And the trick is, is that you don't need to seek someone's validation. You need to make sure that the only person that validates you is you. And so, um, the, the biggest question when I was writing this, I was asking myself, when, when did I know that I could be that brave to step out, to have conversations with both my parents to have conversations with friends um, that I wanted to say for years. And the truth is, is when I went through divorce, everything that I was, this construct of who I was, was destroyed. <laughs> because up until divorce, people looked at me in a way that was very scary to me. A lot of people would put me on a pedestal. Oh, he's such a great guy, such this, he's such that. And one of the struggles that I dealt with is I felt like such a loser because I'm like, I'm lying to these people. Like I'm not giving them me even halfway. I'm giving them like a shade of me at 10%. They don't even have any idea who I really am. And it's like, I understand when people create these false personas and it wasn't like I created a false persona. I just wasn't giving people my light. 
I was giving them like a sliver of it and going, here you go. But I understand when people are pumping up a, a certain facade or a persona, because what happens is it becomes larger than life. It becomes what people want. And you deal with people being fascinated with it. So you don't want to burst their bubble. And what I learned in those moments when I did that was <laughs> I wasn't living my life the way I wanted to live it. I was living it off of other people's expectations. And so I think divorce was really good for me because it it took me to the bottom. I was at my lowest of low. And then I had to unpack the fact that people no longer were going to see me in that light. <laughs> and then I had to go, okay, well, if people aren't going to talk to you because you've fallen, then they really didn't care about you in the first place. And so the perceptions that you have are completely skewed in the first place. So it doesn't really matter what somebody thinks of you. And it really doesn't matter. What matters is how you feel about you and what you do from you. And so the first two lines, you know, you taught yourself restraint. You thought it was your greatest tool. Restraint will always be a core attribute that I have, but it was no longer a tool that served a purpose to, to call it great. It was a survival mechanism. It is a survival tool. And after divorce, I wanted to move out of surviving into thriving. I wanted to really taste happiness, to really be about it. And to do that, I was going to have to do what? Open up myself. I was going to have to let out of my light. And whoever was going to accept me for that, they were. Whoever wasn't going to accept me, whatever. I didn't really care. I knew that I had to to do it. And um, the courage behind it or being brave was one, I had to do it for myself. I had to pick myself for once because my whole life I've been doing things for other people. And this was a time for me to stand up and do something for myself. And I, I was just, I knew I had to pick me. And so I started to do things specifically for me. Um, you know, over this journey, you know, I had Ryan to it. Ryan's very important. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be someone's dad, honestly, because I thought I was so messed up emotionally that I wouldn't be a good dad. And I, I'll tell you now, I don't feel like I am. I just feel like I have enough expertise that I can kind of guide him into hit a lane where he always seeks himself and he always seeks happiness. And then when I look at like Lucas, the impact over the last few years, like losing him was so instrumental into me not um, not taking life for granted. As I said in the one episode, you know, um, today is the gift, you know, the future is a mystery, you know, you know, the past is, is history. And, you know, today is called the gift because it's a present and you need to be present. He used to say, be in the now, be present. And so I always remember that. And so I think if you're not picking yourself first, that's a problem. When I went to therapy and I picked like 10 people and then 20 people before myself, I think my therapist was not happy. But I learned a lesson in that, that I've spent so much of my time surviving and putting other people before myself that I couldn't allow the greatest tool that I, I just didn't know that I buried deep, which was my heart, to shine bright. And so I, I wanted to, to remind you all that you are amazing people. You know, you are, and you go out there every day and you bust your ass. You try to make the best of any situation that you're in. And there are some of you who are restraining yourselves. You got bosses you want to slap across the head. I know, been there. 
You got coworkers you want to stop crossing. Hell, you got family members. You got spouses. You got loved ones. You got all types of situations in your life that are crazy. So stay strong. So um, we, we, we're going to move to, you know, the last two, the what is the why and, and the call to close. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap you up on this positivity wall, volume 12. <laughs> um, you know, you, you taught yourself restraint. You thought it was your greatest tool. Opening up your heart, that is your greatest tool. As I said, I spent a lot of time in my life hiding in plain sight, being invisible, thinking that I wasn't good enough to have people say really kind things to me and, and, and invite me into my own party. <laughs> um, I think the why is like what I said, what is, what is my why? It, it's me. Um, first, it's me. Um, second, it would be Ryan. But but me, it, it was, I spent so much time doing what the world asked me to do, doing what my parents asked me to do, that I didn't spend enough time trying to mend my own heart. And then when I lost everything that I valued, it was a very, it was this point of awakening for me. And it woke me up and it made me go, okay, everything that you built, you built this house, you put this foundation down and now the house is destroyed and now the foundation's cracked. Do you want to try to re-put this together or do you want to start over? And it's like, start over. Now, I'm I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> is if if the house and the foundation is your like your marriage and your family, you know, I, I commend any one of you out there who's gone through divorce and you fought. You were like, no, I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna give it a good, I'm gonna give it a good go. I'm gonna go. If I was going at hundred percent before, I'm going at 150 now. And I respect that. Because the one thing that I used to tell my ex-wife is you can never fault me because I threw my kitchen sink. I threw everything, including the kitchen sink, at this marriage. And in the end, it, it faltered. And going to therapy helped me remi- remind myself of that. Like, yo, you did everything. You opened up. Even then, like, I opened up my heart completely to, to, to be completely vulnerable and lose in that situation. And uh, it sucked, but it was what I needed. I think sometimes you have to go through some bad things to realize who you are and remember that you, you, and you, and only you are amazing and that you are beautiful. You know, like you, you have to remind yourself because the world will tell you that you're nothing, that you're shit. And you get up every day and you try your best and you strive for your best for yourself, for your family, for your children, for your coworkers, for your boss for a job. This life is tough. It comes with no real instruction manual to success. There's everybody, like I I thought, hey, I was going to have, all I ever wanted was to be a part of a family, to be a part of something that I felt like I mattered, like I had a central piece. When I was growing up in my family, I just felt like the odd man out. I felt like I was weak. I was weird, that none of them really got me. They didn't understand me. And so the best thing for me to do is keep my mouth shut. And I did kept my mouth shut. I stayed out of sight. I read a lot. I stayed, I stayed in my own room. I didn't, I was not in the way. And, and that thought process I didn't realize was a very survival mentality that caused me to shy away from the front, to shy away from the light. And one of the instances that I remember that was very powerful for me was 
years ago, um, one of my one of the greatest bosses I ever had. His name is uh, Lou Rodriguez, and he is family to me. And I remember we were in a conference. Can't remember what city we were in. We were in a conference, and he had just taken over our team because um, they shook the teams up, put us together, and he was our our new leader, our district manager. And um, he was trying to get to know all of us. And you know, I gave a, a little bit about myself, but. Then he had us do an activity and he wanted to divide up responsibilities. And I literally just sat back and didn't ask for one. I was just like, whatever the team wants, y'all give me whatever you want to. And he that was the first time he saw it. We did a launch event for a, a device years later. And then he they I did the same thing when it came down to what section I would cover. I was like, all right, whatever y'all need, y'all pick and then give me whatever y'all feel I should have. And he asked me, he said, why do you do that? Why do you step away from the light? Why, 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 why? I don't understand why you keep stepping away from the light when the light is calling you to it. He says, your teammates are specifically asking you what you want, not because they worry about making you feel bad or, or that they want to do something more than you. They value your input. And you. he's like, to me, you just take a step back and you let them choose for you because he's like, either you don't want to piss them off or you don't believe you're worth it. And I said, well, I'm somewhere in between. <laughs> and it was true. I felt like I didn't want to mess up the flow because for me, I would do anything for my teammates. If they told me to go out there and, and take the mic in front of a thousand people for 20 minutes and entertain people, I would do it. It didn't matter to me because I know that I can talk to people. I have no issue with public speaking or whatever, but, but then I didn't feel like I was worth it because my entire life, what I was doing was against the grain of what my parents wanted me to do. My parents wanted me to go to school. Go to school. Why don't you go to school? I'm a millennial who understands what Gen Z understands today. The school is a joke. <laughs> and if you're not going to school to be a doctor or a lawyer specifically, and even those jobs, like a lawyer now, you got lawyers who are who are doing my job in sales because they realize, like, I can write a contract. I can look over your contract for you, but I can help you make money by by getting you to pitch this to this person to sell. They're marketers. So for me, when I went into the workforce, I fell in love with technology and people. And, and I found work that inspired me around that. Developing people has always been something I love. I hope that one day I get to do it again. Right now, I've, in my next job, I've taken an exodus from that. I don't want to develop people. Because I think companies don't get it about developing people. They don't. Corporations care only about the dollar. How you how you going to get the dollar? You need people to do it. So what is your most valuable tool to getting a dollar? People. <laughs> and what do company keep? What do companies keep doing? Pissing off the people. So, yeah, I. He was a person who, Lou was teaching me about dealing with my ambiguity. And my ambiguity came from trauma with, if you make a mistake here, it's everything. And the easiest way not to make a mistake is not to do anything at all, right? Right. <laughs> so one of the greatest gifts he gave me in our time together was take all the information. He's like, like, I remember an exercise he made me do was he was like, I'm going to give you some pieces to a puzzle and you have to tell me the best way to get this puzzle done with the pieces I give you. 
I'm like, all right. And he gave me literally nothing, <laughs> nothing that was of value. And I had to take what I had and, and present a pitch to him of why we should be doing this. And he told me, he told me when I did it, he was like, I'm proud of you. Cause he's like, I didn't think you were going to do it. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. Cause I was uncomfortable. And that's the point. We're supposed to be pushing to our limits of uncomfortability people, because it's through uncomfortable situations that you get what growth you get evolution okay it is through comfort that you find stagnation relaxation and in those things you have to you have to challenge yourself so when i think what is my why um like i said this year for me is discovery this year is about being uncomfortable being completely uncomfortable i've been going on dates it's getting summertime. I'm wearing less. I'm going out more, you know, <laughs> doing things that I hadn't done because being uncomfortable is where I want to be. Because when I am uncomfortable, I'm doing a few things. I am opening up my heart, which allows that to be my greatest tool. And no longer is restraint that tool that I'm reaching for. It's my heart. And so I hope as we call to close that you are going out there and you're being your best self. Yeah, it's tough. Dating's horrible. Oh my goodness. People are weird. And I don't use that word loosely because I was always called weird. Everybody wants everything now to date. It's a process to get to know someone, to understand what they like. And we want to meet someone today and be married to them tomorrow. It's so depressing at times. But opposed to just sitting down and being comfortable in my own space like I've done for years, and going, oh, no, I don't want that. Let me push it out of my circle. I ch I'm challenging myself. I'm challenging myself to go into uncomfortable spaces because I know when I show someone my heart, when I show someone the light that I have, that I am an amazing person. And if that person doesn't like how I shine, that's fine. There's somebody that maybe I will find that does that. I chose to rebuild my foundation. I'm rebuilding a house upon that foundation. I'm not stuck on my old foundation, my old home, that was, the truth is the greatest relief of it imploding was being able to start over, being able to look at myself and saying, you know what, Jam, what you have been doing isn't good enough because you're just, you've been moving in a survival mentality. We need you to thrive. We need you to seek happiness. So as I call to close, uh, if you're, if you are someone who is hiding in plain sight, Hi, my name is Jemaiah. <laughs> I'm a father of one. Uh, I like to go to the beach sometimes, and it's very refreshing for me. Because I like to go to the beach and sit and listen to the waves crash and watch sunsets and sunrises, I will set my alarm to get up for sunrises and sunsets. <laughs> I like to take photography of them. It puts me at ease. It makes me feel really good. Um, if you feel alone then reach out to someone so that you don't feel alone. If you feel like you're not worthy, just know that you are and that you're not the only one going through it and that there are people who care. All you got to do is say something. For the longest time, I hid in plain sight because I felt I was invisible. And the only times that people made me feel visible is when I was sitting in a restaurant by myself or sitting at a bar by myself, like at a bar stool, and a person would come up to me and go, hello, how are you doing? And the funny thing about that before I go it would always be, it would always be older women who would come up and approach me. Not to say that cougars like me, but to say that it would be older women who would sit down beside me. It, it could be like 10 bar stools and I'm sitting at like the ninth one and they would come sit right at the 10th one. 
and be like, hello, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, you talking to me? Oh, I'm doing all right. And I took every one of those times that a, a woman sat down beside me and was talking to me as, as the universe trying to tell me I am not alone. Because there were some moments in those times where I was struggling not to cry. I was struggling not to feel like I was by myself, like I was worth anything. I had tough days and I just felt like, why am I here? What am I doing? Because I'm not good enough. And their calming words would always bring me back to perspective. It would always remind me that I have it pretty good and that I just got to understand and appreciate what I got. And so I just, if you feel alone, reach out to someone. Take that chance today. Take the chance. If you feel like you're going to bother someone, hell, bother them. Okay? Bother them. <laughs> you know? If you need to, if you need to, to message someone, like I said, I'm on Instagram. JDR Creatives. You know, it's on Instagram. If you <laughs> if you message me, I will message you. I don't ever want people, the one thing that the reason why I've created this audio journal was initially for my son, because I wanted him to know that if I should leave or die before the time came, um, I always wanted him to, to be able to see his father fully. I think as a parent, we don't give our children the full 3D version of ourselves. You, my son gets me in 2D. There are moments he gets me in 3D. But the reason why is because he's nine years old. If I give him a full 3D perspective of me, he won't understand it fully. Um, we're still working through divorce <laughs> and still trying to make him understand because the truth is, I shouldn't say he wouldn't understand 3D. It's having him see loss or having him experience loss for how he views something. If I tell him the real reason why I've been through divorce and what's going on, it would make him look at the world a little bit different than he does. And I believe in letting a child have their innocence until they learn to grow through it. I don't believe in taking innocence from a child. I had mine taking in, in a way of, this is the world. This is how it is. Get over it. Suck it up. Okay. Yeah, this happened to you. What are you going to do? Cry and bitch about it? Or are you going to man up? Like that, that, that was a discussion. Award-winning, like a beautiful performance. But looking back on it, I get what my mom was doing. Um, I get the responsibility of being better for my son, and I will. So I just, I, I like to say that if, if you feel alone, there is somebody who will talk with you. There is somebody who will sit with you as I've had people sit with me as I've cried. And, and I've had to choose not to suffer alone. And it's been hard because you don't want to feel like you're someone's burden. But I've been so blessed to have amazing friends to help me through it. I've been so blessed to have the ability to go to therapy and sort out the problems, understanding and attacking compartmentalization, understanding that I am not a burden. I am here to exist and I have a right to exist. So do you. And um, so when I think of, of this one, when I think of the positivity wall 12, I think of a, of a, of a human being in struggle, a human being believing that he had to be a certain way, teaching himself and being taught to be a certain way, and then doing things the right way, and then watching everything he built be destroyed in front of him, and literally snapping, losing his mind. Like, I lost my mind. When I lost my, 
my equivalent of everything. When I lost that, my family, my my wife, oh man, I snapped. But the greatest thing about snapping was now I put myself at the center and said, I want what I deserve. I want my slice of joy. I demand <laughs> my own slice of happiness. So as you can hear through the other positivity walls, they all play into each other. But um, the restraint that I had taught myself, I was so wrong. And I can say that today, that I was wrong. And I'm so blessed that I can say that I was wrong. And I can say that my heart will always be my greatest tool. And if you know me and you do have known me, you know my love for you. And I will always want you to be great because I want you to win. I always want you to win, and I will scream from the top of my lungs to make sure you win. And that is the greatest tool of me. That's my heart. So the phrase that pays, as we always say, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you are going through, understand that me, that I, that Jam, believes and knows it to be true, that you're amazing, (laughs) you are beautiful, and you are so loved. Always remember that. She knows it. I would like to take the time to thank you for joining this jam talk for today. That's it. That's the end. There's nothing else to say. Go back to your your regularly scheduled program. She knows it.